0: intention to preach from Revelation chapter 19, but I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9 for an important introduction. So in the the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul has been explaining that You don't get to heaven because of who your family is. That's one of the main points. And he has in mind especially the family of Abraham. So this needs to be, needs to be made clear then, needs to be made clear now. But the, uh, the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham had the idea that they constituted the kingdom of God. And now that Paul and the apostles are teaching that the way of salvation is you must be born again, and being merely born into the family of Israel does not mean that you're part of the kingdom of God, that sounded like strange teaching to them. Uh, Nicodemus, when, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And Jesus said, you're Israel's teacher, and don't you know these things? These things are taught in the Old Testament. But it is uh, in a background of confused Israelites saying, well, then did God's promises to Abraham fail that we come to Romans chapter 9? Did God's promises to Abraham fail? And so let's take a look at Romans chapter 9. This will help us to understand what happens in Revelation 19. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Uh, uh, That requires a little bit of explanation. I don't think that Paul is saying, I wish that I didn't know Christ and I, I would go to hell if it meant that the Israelites would be saved. That word that is translated accursed is a word that sometimes means totally devoted. So like Jericho was totally devoted to the Lord, that means that no one was supposed to take any of the treasure. When Achan took some of the treasure, then Israel fell over under a curse because of it, but it was totally, it was totally devoted to the Lord. And so, when Paul says that I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, I think that what he is saying is I have been appointed to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but I could wish that it were otherwise. I could wish that I were totally devoted to be an apostle to the, to the the Jews, my own family. I, I could heartily wish that. I mean, it's just absurd for someone who loves Christ to say, I would gladly part from Christ for my family. That would mean that I love my family more than I love Christ. And uh, so that's not, that's not what Paul is saying, although I, I think that this and other translations don't get that. I don't understand that. So, but anyway, that just required a word of explanation. That's not the main point that I'm making from this passage of scripture. So he said, he, he, but he has great love for Israel. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So he he lists all of these wonderful privileges. That physical Israel has. But remember, he's going to deal with the question from confused Israelites. I thought we were the people of God and that just being a Jew was enough. So has the word of God to Abraham failed? Verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Hmm. Now that's enigmatic language, that's a little bit of a puzzle. What does it mean, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel? Well, it means that there are two Israels. One is spiritual Israel, and one is physical Israel. Now spiritual Israel is... Spiritual Israel consists of people who have been united to God through faith throughout history. And we can just start with Abraham. So Abraham wasn't the first saved man in the Bible, but God made a special covenant with Abraham saying, "...through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. Whoever blesses you will be blessed. Whoever curses you will be cursed." And this is the way that it's going to be forever. And so Abraham had a boy, Isaac. Abraham had other sons. But Isaac is the son of promise. And so the promised seed goes from Abraham to Isaac, not Ishmael, Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. But the seed of spiritual Israel goes through Jacob Not Esau. And then Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so Israel became the name that God used to refer to his spiritual people. So spiritual Israel. He called them Israel. Let's read read this and then I'll pick up the argument. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, just simply being born, having the same DNA as Abraham doesn't mean that you are his child. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I mean, Ishmael had Abraham's DNA. But Isaac is the child of promise. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Underline the word Sarah. Emphasize the word Sarah. Not Hagar. Not your concubine. But Sarah shall have a son. This is going to be a a miraculous son. Ishmael was conceived through Hagar in the normal way, and also Isaac was conceived through intimate relations between Abraham and Sarah, but they both were were too old to bear children, especially Sarah, who was 90 years old. And so this is a spiritual, uh, supernaturally enabled birth. Isaac is born and paul what paul is saying is see see from the beginning it has not been everybody who descended from abraham who belongs to spiritual israel some of them were physical israel like like ishmael like esau but they weren't part of spiritual israel let's continue not only so verse 10 But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And here's, here's one of the purposes of election not because of works, but because of him who calls. So, election makes it very clear that salvation is not by works, it's dependent upon God who calls. So in order that God's purpose of election might continue, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So to review, Abraham had more than one son, but only one of them was spiritual Israel. Isaac had more than one son, but only one of them was spiritual Israel. The others were physical descendants of Abraham, but not spiritual Israel. Now, after a period of uh, several hundred years, two to four hundred years, the sons of Jacob went down into Egypt, and they were there for about 270 years. And then they came out, and God made another covenant with the people of Israel. So, there is this covenant that God made with Abraham, like, 400 years earlier God makes a covenant with Abraham and it's a covenant that will never be dissolved and it is a spiritual covenant and then about 400 years after that covenant God makes another covenant with Abraham's descendants who by this time number in the millions and he brings them out of Egypt and uh, Moses leads them out and And after several months of traveling, they come to Mount Sinai, and God makes a new covenant with Israel. And it's a covenant with the physical people of Israel. And so within all of these millions of Israel, there are spiritual Israelites, but there are also Israelites who are just physical Israelites. And in doing this, God was preserving something like a national womb for the protection of his truth and for the, the, the birth of his son that is going to take place about 1,200 years later. So from about 1,200 B.C., the time of Moses, until the time of my text today, there had been a covenant with physical Israel, and God describes this covenant with physical Israel as a marriage relationship. And uh, if we had the time and if I were prepared to do so, I could show you numerous Old Testament texts where God refers to Israel as his wife, and it almost always is an unfaithful wife. So she's going astray. She is uh, acting like a prostitute. And uh, committing spiritual adultery with the nations around her and their false religious ideas. And so God begins chastening his wife and sends uh, marauding nations to punish her. And in the book of Judges, which covers about 300 years, you can see this process repeated again and again. Uh, Israel will stray from the Lord. The Lord sends uh, someone to punish Israel. Repents. God sends a judge to deliver them, and so on. And then, and then, uh, Saul and David become king. Around the year one thousand, they become king. Uh, Saul first, and then David. And under Saul and David and Solomon, all twelve of the tribes of Israel are one kingdom. And uh, this is physical Israel, but within physical Israel, I mean Saul was part of physical Israel, but he wasn't part of spiritual Israel. David was part of both physical Israel and spiritual Israel. And um, so then, after after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom was divided, and the northern ten tribes apostatized soon, sooner than the northern, uh, the southern two tribes. And God sent the northern tribes into captivity, into Assyrian captivity. So the Assyrians were able to come in and, uh, and, and take away Israel into slavery. And then a couple hundred years later, the Babylonians came in and did the same thing with the southerners. But then God restored them to the land. And we have the writings of the Old Testament prophets, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, many of whom are talking about now that God has given you another chance to come back and to serve Him, then serve Him and worship Him. And then there's a period of about 400 years of silence. And then comes Jesus. And uh, when Jesus comes, then He is preaching the message of repentance. In fact, His first message is to the people of Israel was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And don't say that the kingdom of God is here or there. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God has come. And Jesus, on, on the one hand, is saying there are people who are living in the kingdom of God right now among you. But there is coming a drastic change that the old covenant, the old covenant with physical Israel is going to be abolished. The old wife is going to be divorced, and she's going to be executed. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about the divorce of the old wife, physical Israel, and the marriage of the lamb to the new wife, who is spiritual Israel, but it consists not just of physical Israelites who trust in Jesus, but also people from all nations who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. During the days of the Old Covenant, during the days uh, that, that started with, uh, with Sinai and, and go through the destruction of Jerusalem, if a, a person from Europe who was not a Jew wanted to worship the true God... He had to become a Jew. He had to undergo Jewish rituals in order to to know the true God and be part of the covenant community. And uh, some of that confusion lingers into the New Testament writings. One of the most destructive teachings that the Apostle Paul and other apostles had to deal with was the lingering insistence that if you are going to be part of spiritual Israel, then you have to undergo the rituals and ceremonies of physical Israel. And the New Testament says over and over again, no, those those things have been abolished. You don't have to be circumcised if you're going to be part of spiritual Israel. In fact, at the end of Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. Neither is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. And so there were fusses and disagreements saying, Well, if, if the Gentiles are going to be part of spiritual Israel... Then they, they need to observe the, the, the religious holy days of the Old Covenant. And no, say the, says the Holy Spirit, don't let anyone judge you with respect to these old Sabbaths or with these religious festivals and celebrations or with the dietary restrictions. You can eat whatever you want to now. You're, you're no longer under those, under those restrictions that were applied only during the time of the Old Covenant. There was a disagreement uh, among the Jewish Christians about this, and so there was a uh, there had to be kind of a summit meeting of the apostles in in Jerusalem, and you can read about this in the book of Acts. And one of the apostles speaks up and says, "Hey, let's don't put a burden on these Gentile believers that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear." Of course, these Spiritual Israelites who had been part of the old covenant were thankful for all the blessings that had come through that old covenant. Paul mentions many of them here in Romans chapter 9 that I just read. There's are the patriarchs. They have the word of God. There's so many blessings that we have had. But let's be honest, the apostles say. It's been a great burden that neither we nor our our brothers have been able to bear. Let's don't Keep that burden perpetuated and put it on people when it is unnecessary. Now, it's possible that that's the first time you've ever heard that explained. Because I think that I was uh, almost 20 years old before I heard that explained. And so there was a fair amount of confusion that was swirling around in my little beady head. And one of those issues of confusion made me feel like I was some kind of a second-class citizen because I wasn't a Jew. Uh, Because in the uh, the church where I grew up, very good church, still is a good church. Uh, My dad was the pastor, but he had a perspective on the book of Revelation and a perspective on the covenant made with Abraham that said the physical people of Israel remain, a, remain the people of God. And he, he, now I don't think my dad would have said this, but there are people who will say this. Christ offering the kingdom to Gentiles was plan B. It's not his first choice. His first choice was that he would offer the kingdom to Israel, that Israel would accept it, and then he would set up a Jewish kingdom. But because that never worked out, then he implemented plan B, which opened up the opportunity for salvation to the non-Jewish nations. But he eventually is going to go back to plan A because he really loves Jews more than he likes anybody else on earth. And uh, whether or not it was uh, espoused that clearly growing up, that's what I heard. That's what I thought. And so uh, when I found out that one of my grandparents had the last name Khan, there was a flicker of hope that raised up in me. Maybe I'm partly Jew, and then I could be part of the people that God really likes because it's the Jews that God really likes well one of the effects of uh, the teaching that we're God willing going to have today one of the effects is that you will no longer feel like you are a second class citizen if you have been confused like I have been uh, when I was a young man thinking man I just wish I was a Jew so I could be among God's favorites I've got news for you today. God was at one time married to physical Israel, but not only did he divorce her, he executed her. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. There are, there are many Jews who are living here today. I'm using the same figure of speech that the Lord uses. And let me be quick to say before anyone jumps to the wrong conclusion, there is not a drop of anti-Semitic blood in my body, and there is not a drop of anti-Semitic teaching in the Bible. And so just like during the days of the Old Covenant, that 1,200 years <clears throat> that from the time of Moses to the time of <clears throat> A.D. 70, just like during those days, if someone wanted to become part of the community that worships the true God, He had to become a Jew. He had to undergo Jewish ceremonies and rituals. So now the people of God are not physical Israel. The people of God are spiritual Israel. And if anyone wants to know and be in fellowship with the true God, he must become part of spiritual Israel. And the condition of becoming part of spiritual Israel is that you repent of your sin and you receive the Messiah. You receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Those are the conditions of the new covenant. I should have mentioned much earlier that a covenant is a conditional agreement. A covenant is an, a, a, condi- a conditional agreement. The, co- the covenant that God made with physical Israel was a conditional agreement. You will continue to be my people as long as you remain faithful to me and as long as you receive my Messiah. <clears throat> Moses himself said, and this is quoted in the book of Acts, After me, God will raise up another prophet like me. Anyone who does not receive him will be totally cut off from his people. And so even at the very commencement of the covenant, the conditional agreement with Israel, Moses, the prophet of the old covenant, said, There's a time coming when there's going to be another prophet and you've got to receive him. And if you don't, you will no longer be part of God's covenant people. And so the message that we have for people of all nations, including the Jewish nation, is repent of your sin. Don't trust in any kind of ancient rituals, even if they are in the Old Testament. Don't trust in any of those. The new covenant has come. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin, and you will become part of spiritual Israel. Unless a man is born again, he will never see the kingdom of God. And that was spoken from one Jew to another Jew. And that's the message that still comes to Jews and Gentiles alike today. You must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of God. And so in Revelation chapter 19, where I want you to turn now, in Revelation chapter 19, we see that You have no reason to feel like you are a second-class citizen because you don't have the DNA of Abraham. My wife, Carol, was not converted until she was about 20 years old. And at the time that she was converted, she was engaged to another man. And so, when she, he was not a believer... And so, as she received Christ as her king, she saw that the king said, you must not marry a non-believer. The Bible says it very clearly, you shall not be unequally yoked together with non-believers. And so, she took a very brave step. She broke off the engagement with her fiancé. Now, six or seven years later, her ship came in and... Uh, <clears throat> She saw that it was all for the better, but at the time it was a very difficult thing for her to do uh, but uh, but here, here here I come along six or seven years later uh, i 'm twenty seven she 's twenty eight by the time uh, by the time we become an item, and uh, I find out that she 's been engaged to somebody else so pretty early in our interaction, I want to know. Are you over this guy? I mean, it's been six or seven years, so it's been a long time. And the, and the illustration would perhaps be more relevant if she had only broken up with him in, in the previous year. But it would be important for me to know, are you just taking me on the rebound? I mean, am I your second choice? Do you really wish that you were still engaged to him? And uh, I think that's an appropriate illustration for the questions that some people who have been under the influence of certain perspectives on the end times and on who the people of God are, that's a question that might legitimately be asked. God, do you really love the church, or are we just your second choice? Here in Revelation chapter 19, we see that uh, the old the old wife has been divorced, and everybody's happy about it. So that might seem kind of abrupt, a little cruel, but uh, the old wife is not just divorced, the old wife is annihilated, and everybody's happy about it. I've mentioned to you before that the word hallelujah appears only in one chapter in the Bible, in that one chapter it appears four times And this is that chapter. The word hallelujah doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament, but right here. And all four of these hallelujahs have to do with the divorce and abolition of the old covenant, the divorce and abolition of the old wife, and the marriage and coming of the new bride, which is believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's, first of all, see what this passage of Scripture tells us about the old wife After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute. All right, that's one thing to to learn about this old wife. She has not been a good wife. She has been not just guilty of an occasional immorality. This wife has been a prostitute. A persistent, perennial, year after year prostitute. And God was so patient with her, but she continued in her prostitution. Notice what it says next about the old wife, who corrupted the earth with her immorality, or corrupted the land, so her influence was very detrimental. This is, this is not a woman who was just content to uh, have her own pleasure of immorality, but she wanted, as is so often the case, she wanted to drag other people into her sin with her. And she corrupted the earth with her immorality. And then look at the next thing that it says about the old wife. Well, it says that God avenged on her the blood of his servants, but what does that say about the old wife? She was a she was a saint killer. So it wasn't just that she thought, You know, I want to have the pleasure of sexual promiscuity. She also wanted to corrupt other people. And then she turns her attention to the people who are saying, you shouldn't be like that. And she says, I will kill you if you say that again. And when they said it again, then she killed them. And so by the time Jesus comes, he addresses Jerusalem. And he says, woe to you. Jerusalem who kills the prophets and the holy men who have been sent sent to you throughout the ages. How often I have longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen would gather her little chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And now your house is left to you desolate, he says to them. In another place, Jesus says, You have shed the blood of apostles and prophets who have been sent to you throughout history. And in fact, all the blood is gathered up in you and God is going to pour out His vengeance on this generation. The people that I'm talking to, people who are alive now, God is going to pour out His vengeance on this generation because you have shed the blood of His servants. And so uh, our tendency is to feel pity or anyone that we see suffering, but keep in mind that the person who is being punished here is someone who has been an immoral prostitute, someone who has used her influence to uh, adversely affect other nations, and who has killed the people that God loved and sent to them, culminating in the death of his own son. This is the old wife. And so, In judging the old wife, some things are revealed about the character of God. So look back in the last part of verse 1. Hallelujah, this great multitude says, so they're not filled with pity. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now salvation here, I think, is used in a broader sense than he saves people from hell. I think it is... He is administering justice on the people who have killed my servants. And a part of salvation is not just salvation to good things. It's also salvation from bad things and bringing judgment upon the people who perpetrated the bad things. And I think that's the salvation that is in view here. <clears throat> the, the congregation, the great multitude in heaven cries out, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jerusalem has been awful to God's people, has been terrible to them, has persecuted them, and then killed his own son. Hallelujah. God shows himself to be someone who stands up for his family. Think of it that way. So what kind of a man would stand by and see his his wife attacked, see his wife raped, see his children attacked and abused, and just stand there and say, well, I just, I just don't want to see the guy suffer. No, you'd say, be a man. This is not the time for you to feel pity. Save your family. And that's the salvation that belongs to God. He steps in and saves his family. And salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And so this great multitude is glad that the old wife has been divorced and that the old wife is is executed. And in fact, verse 3 puts it even stronger. Hallelujah, they cry out again. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And so the torment that is uh, leveled against the enemies of God is not just a, a temporary annihilation. It's over with. But it is a spiritual agony that is here represented as a burning that goes up forever and ever. And in our misdirected pity and compassion, we may wonder, is eternity in hell an appropriate uh, punishment for people who sin? And our hearts bleed with, with compassion for the people who are in hell? But our hearts bleed with compassion because in our imperfect state we do not yet see the way that God sees. But this multitude in heaven sees the way that God sees. And there's no pity in what they say. They're glad that this judgment is being marshaled against the enemy of the Lord. And uh, it's joined by people who have been part of physical Israel. So that's who I take the 24 elders to be in verse 4, 24 is 12 plus 12. And so I take this to be representative of physical Israel and the 12 apostles. This is people from the Old Testament and the New Testament who are joining together and nodding their head in solemn assent. That's what the word amen means. It means I assent to what is being done. I assent to what is being said. So uh, they, they say, amen, and not sad amen, but happy amen, followed up by another hallelujah. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice. Now it doesn't say who this is, but... Since the, thro- the voice is coming from the throne and saying, praise God, I think it must be Jesus. I think it must be Jesus, the voice from the throne, who says, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Praise God for his awful, terrible, when I say awful, I mean awe-inspiring, his awe-inspiring, terrible, I mean terrifying Justice that he administers against his enemies. And so that is the first point in which we had the death of the old bride and the universal happiness about it. Now in the second point, in the second part of this chapter, we see the arrival of the new bride and an invitation to the wedding supper. Let's see what it says in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. It's the last time the word will appear in the New Testament. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. But now the the attention of the praisers is turned away from the smoke of the torment of the old wife and is turned to the beauty of the new wife coming in. Now, just two weeks ago yesterday, we had a wedding between two young people in our church, Emma and Noah. And uh, there, come, there came that moment when uh, everybody has filed in and everybody's standing there. And then I, the, the preacher, Give a little motion. Stand up. The person playing the piano hits a different note on the piano. Everyone turns around. There she is. There comes Emma. Gorgeous dress. Beautiful. Just how could she be more beautiful? And everyone, you know, there's tears in the eyes of the dads. And uh, thinking how much that dress cost. And then... (laughs) You know, just the, the idea of, man, one of these days I'm going to have to give my little girl away. And, oh, I remember what it was like when I gave my little girl away. But, oh, just the beauty, the beauty of that bride coming down. And, and then sometimes I'll steal a glance at the groom, and I see other people are looking at the groom, and the groom's eyes are about this big, and Noah's got a little drivel of slobber coming out of his mouth. He control yourself, son and uh, but good good reason how could it be how could it be more more beautiful that's what you've got going on right here so the attendants are there the 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 best man I wonder if John the Baptist is there saying he must become greater I must become less the bride belongs to the bridegroom and when he hears the voice of the bridegroom he rejoices that joy is mine it is now complete and and here he stands in heaven and and here comes the bride and he sees the face of Jesus with excited joy as he sees this bride that he has paid for so dearly with his own blood. And here comes, here comes the bride. There's an old hymn that I memorized years ago that captures this beautifully. I sometimes think of it when I see the bride walking down the aisle. It was with an everlasting love that God his own elect embraced Before he formed the worlds above, or earth on her huge columns placed. Long ere the sun's refulgent rays, primeval shades of darkness drove. They on his sacred bosom lay, loved with an everlasting love. Then in the glass of his decrees, Christ and his bride appear as one. Her sin by imputation his, while she... In spotless splendor shone. Oh love how high. How great immutable and free. Ten thousand sins as black as hell. Are swallowed up O oh, love in thee. And when you think of what this bride was. Before Jesus got hold of her. And all uh, the rags that she was dressed in. And the filth of her sin upon her. And then Jesus comes and he he takes her and he says, we, we're going to have to get you some fine white linen to wear and I'll help you. And I'm going to cleanse you by my own blood. And he does that and now here she comes. Here comes this beautiful, beautiful bride. And all the, uh, the hosts of heaven, hallelujah, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And in verse 8, I think we see both imputed righteousness and we also see the righteousness that comes through the works of the saints. These, these things are not exclusive. They don't butt heads against each other. When Jesus Christ imputes His pure, spotless righteousness to someone, that person becomes a lover of good deeds, and those deeds are carried with Him to heaven. And this is not one single person. This is the people of God considered corporately, and we, as the people of God, will be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but also with the righteousness of the good deeds that the Lord has granted us to clothe ourselves with. You see that word at the beginning of verse 8, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. God doesn't need any of the good works that we do, but he grants us the privilege of doing good works and he credits us with the credit of having done them so that even in heaven it adds to the splendor of the bride of Christ that she is clothed with good works. And so there's the the new bride and the delight of the bridegroom to receive her. Notice the invitation. This kind of gives you the idea that this is an event that is pictured here, but is ultimately going to take place in the future. The angel said to me in verse 9, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. I just imagine that maybe there was a a look of incredulity that came on John's face. Can it be? Can it be? And the angel looks at him with a solemn nod of his head and said, yes, these are the true words of God. And when John hears it, it's just too much for him. Verse 10 says, I fell down at his feet to worship him and we went too far there. He said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so the angel says, oh no, don't, don't worship me. Don't worship me or any other man. Worship God. I'm just a fellow servant with you and with the people who are going to make up this bride. Those who, are the, who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, this chapter concludes with the bridegroom dressed in his military uniform. Now, several years ago, one of my daughters, Hannah, married a young man who had uh, recently graduated from the uh, West Point uh, the Army Academy, and uh, he decided that he was going to get married in his uh, in his dress uniform. So he was still in the army, going to get married in his dress uniforms. And then all of his attendants, all of his groomsmen, were also officers who had graduated from West Point, and they were all dressed in their dress uniforms. And, uh, oh, it was a glorious sight. You know, beautiful, beautiful October day, my my beautiful daughter getting married, and then walking down the aisle and uh, giving her away to somebody who looks like he's going to take care of her you know that's a good thing and there he is and uh, these officers in their dress uniforms have got these big sabers hanging by their side and that's that's a good that's a good group to give your daughter away to if they're christian men as they were and uh and he has proven to be a, a, a good husband, a good godly man. Just a blessing to him, my daughter and a blessing to our family. Well, here we see the bridegroom and he's wearing his military uniform. Let's look what it says about him. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Now, Jesus has already called himself this back in Revelation 3. So right away we know this is Jesus. Jesus is wearing at this ceremony. Now, it may be that you, like I, have been accustomed to read this passage of Scripture saying this is the glorious coming of Jesus at the end of the world. But I've come to conclude that it's not describing the glorious coming of Jesus at the end of the world. It is the glorious coming of Jesus in A.D. 70 to change the covenants, to destroy the old unfaithful prostitute wife, and to receive the new bride. Now, the practical implication of this... Well, let me hold off on that. Why do I say that? Well, for one thing, we're getting ready to read that he casts the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire, and we have already established that the beast and the false prophet are first century figures. So, the beast is Nero the false prophet, the corrupt priesthood of Jerusalem that was cooperating with the uh, with the Roman uh, goings-on. And so they're, they're first century people. Jesus is going to cast them into the lake of fire. Another thing, remember when Jesus was taken up into heaven, some angels, He how did he go? He was caught up into a cloud. And some angels came and said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus, whom you have seen going up into heaven, will come in like manner. So if he is received up by clouds, then we assume that's how he's going to come back. He didn't leave on a white horse. And so in this coming, he's coming on a white horse. And then also the weapon that he is using here is a sword that is coming from his mouth. In other words, it is his word. And so now I've given you three reasons why I think this is referring to what happened in AD 70. Let me say that I believe that Jesus is going to come back in glory and that he is going to whoop up on the bad guys. So I think that's going to happen. I just don't think that's what's described here. I think this this is a whooping up on the bad guys that happened about 2,000 years ago. Now, the practical implications of that, and that's what I, that's what I started to say a while ago. This is what I started to say a while ago. The practical implications of that is that this is a way that we may think of Jesus right now. That gives, that gives courage to me. Jesus, I don't know how you think of him. I try to avoid any uh, pictures or mental images of Jesus. But do you think of him as just quietly padding about heaven, uh, ministering in the tabernacle that is there? Do you think of Jesus just sitting quietly at his Father's right hand with kind of a Mona Lisa smile on his face at the satisfaction the way things are going? How, how do you think about Jesus conceptually? I think this is a very powerful way to think of Jesus now. You don't have to imagine the face of him sitting on the white horse, but just know he's in his military blues. That is, he's in his dress uniform. He's ready for battle. These hosts of heaven that are following him, I believe, are not going to participate in the battle. I think that they are observers who are seeing. They're also on white horses, observers watching what Jesus is going to do. And so now we get an invitation to another supper. Or we're told to see another supper. By the way, I think that this validates those of us who refer to the evening meal as supper rather than dinner. That uh, the Lord himself uses the word supper here, not dinner. So I'm going to stick with calling the evening meal supper. But now, so we've already seen the supper of the marriage supper of the lamb. And now here's another gruesome supper. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the throne and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And so I think that this is a a poetic description of the judgment that Jesus poured out on Jerusalem, on Nero, on the corrupt priesthood that had cooperated with Rome in executing Jesus and in killing the prophets and apostles who had been sent to them throughout the ages. Several concluding observations... One, Jesus is not entirely nice. Jesus can be harsh when necessary. Don't make it necessary. You want to be part of true spiritual Israel? Receive Jesus. If you have received Jesus, and if you have made the mistake of kind of secretly wishing that you were a Jew, take heart. You are a spiritual Jew. You are the offspring of Abraham and an heir according to the promise, that covenant that will not be abolished that God made with Abraham. You are part of true spiritual Israel. And then one final thing. You're not serving a wimpy sissified, Jesus. You are serving, and on the white horse, eyes like flames of fire, sword coming out of his mouth, Jesus. And let that affect the way that you think about things and the way that you do things. We're going to conclude with singing a hymn that talks about Jesus coming from heaven to seek his bride. I hope that you're able to sing it with with fresh understanding and gusto. The church is one foundation.